Okay, welcome back everyone. Grab your seats and your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 16. Okay, we are picking up a little more than, or about halfway through uh, this passage of Scripture. Last week we got into it. We looked at the beginning of the second missionary journey. We look, looked at Timothy joining the team, Dr. Luke joining the team. We looked at how God was speaking to them and leading them and opening doors and closing doors and noted that he closed more doors than he opened as he directed their path to Macedonia and to Philippi. We looked at the encounter with Lydia a business lady there by the river praying. There was no synagogue in that city. And as the Lord was directing them, they now sort of get into a, a difficult situation. So as we pick it up this morning in verse 16, we'll have the passage on the screen for you, but trust that you'll follow along in your Bible. So Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, and the word of God reads as follows. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us <clears throat> who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison Awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Silas and Paul. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. 
Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Lord, we trust that you will add the blessing of the Holy Spirit to the reading of your word. And that as always, Lord, you would be the one who guides and who explains and who helps us understand these things. And Lord, we pray especially that you would speak to us this morning about what does this mean to us today in the time in which we're living. How does it apply, Lord, to our lives? And we know that you have a response for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love Acts 16. We're just in the beginning parts of this second missionary journey. And as we are going through this chapter, there's many sort of sub-themes that sort of pop out at us. And one of those is what we could call a tale of three salvations. We have this lady, Lydia. We encounter this demon-possessed girl. And we encounter this man, the Philippian jailer. Remember, there was a vision given while Paul and the crew were at Troas waiting on the Lord because the Lord had closed doors for them to go uh, south and southwest and he prevented them from going north. They they couldn't go east. They had sort of come from the east and so it seemed like the Lord was directing them sort of due west or northwest and the Lord directed them up to the city of Troas. And as he got there, they got there, they were waiting on the Lord and the Lord gave Paul a vision, a dream, speaking to him in the night. And after that, the the crew decided, uh, because they were all seeking the Lord, that that was the word of the Lord to them, as Paul related to them the contents of that vision or that dream. And then they decided to get on the ship. They sailed from there all the way over to Samoth Race. And as we talked about last week, that would normally be a several-day journey. And indeed, on the return journey, it was five days. But the Lord put a wind on their back and allowed them to get there in two days. So they get there and now they have to travel about 30 miles inward through Centria all the way up into Philippi. Can you bring up that map, please? And as they were going there, uh, we'll have that map up in a second, just to sort of refresh your memory. Uh, If you could do the second one, please, which is zoomed in a little bit. There you go. So uh, we are looking at the uh, red line, uh, which is the second journey, uh, going all the way up through uh, Cilicia there on the right, and then through the southern province of Galatia. Um, sorry, we're looking at the dotted line, excuse me, the sort of purple dotted line that goes up then uh, across the top of Asia, sort of scorts, scort, uh, skirts the, uh, the land side there, the ocean, and goes all the way over to Troas. And so we're following that sort of bluish purple line as God is leading them. So now they are up into that area where you see the little dot, if you can read it, that says Neapolis, up just below Thrace and to the right of Macedonia. So they are up there in um, Philippi. And so the next chapters are going to take them on down uh, around through uh, Berea, Thessalonica, all the way down through that peninsula there in Greece and down to Athens. But right now we're up at the very top point. So they are there sharing the gospel. They've shared the gospel with Lydia and her household. And in an amazing fashion, as they go there and they preach by the riverside and share the gospel with this this group of people, 
Lydia and her whole household get saved. Now, the unique thing about this in this sort of tale of three salvations is that Lydia is a God-fearer and a God-seeker. She just hadn't quite found God. She hadn't discovered Jesus Christ. And so as they shared with them, as they were people who believed in the Old Testament scriptures, they, it says there in that scripture, as we read it last week, that God opened her heart. And we talked about the fact that God has to open the heart of people to believe. You see, we, we preach the gospel, we share the gospel with people, but the way salvation happens in the human heart is always a mystery, isn't it? When you think about your own salvation, if we could actually take time to, to, for each of us to sort of rehearse our stories, some of us no doubt had a religious upbringing in some way. Or some of us maybe like this demon-possessed girl we're going to encounter here in just a moment, maybe you're possessed by the devil. Maybe you're living in the world, you're living in deep sin, and you're in the grip of Satan. And as Paul and, and the other men there, they, they minister to and witness to this demon-possessed girl, this amazing thing happens. The miracle of salvation that happened in Lydia's life, in a sense almost gently and easily, now comes in a very dramatic and a very hard way to this woman who is possessed by a demon. And then later we're going to find out by this Philippian jailer as well. Uh, he's a man who's not seeking God. He's in the world. He's a Roman guard. He's a godless man. And it takes a literal earthquake to get his attention. And so there's a, there's a great undercurrent here of different ways that God brings salvation to people. So picking our story up in verse 16... Now it happened as we went to prayer, so they had just kind of walked out of this situation with Lydia. She's invited them to stay in their house. So now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So this young girl is no doubt possessed by a demon. It says possessed by a spirit of divination. In fact, in the original Greek, it tells us that the phrase, I had a spirit, reveals with horror that she literally had a Pythian spirit or had a spirit of a python. According to myth, Python was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollo and eventually was killed by Apollo. And later, the word python came to mean a demon-possessed person who, uh, through whom Python spoke. So there was this uh, cave in a mountain not, uh, not too far outside of Athens where uh, Zeus uh, uh, supposedly lived. And this cave supposedly went into the netherworld. And the entrance to that cave that went down to where the demons lived was guarded by this large snake, which was a python. At least that's the story, that's the myth. And after Apollo had killed and conquered this great snake, uh, this python. It was believed that now the spirit of that python was available to go into people, and only special people would receive that spirit. And so here we have the story of this young girl possessed by this spirit of a python or this, this evil demonic spirit. And notice we're told here 
that uh, this certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. That's key. Because they were using her as a slave and one person wrote this in their uh, commentaries. I'll share this with you just to sort of paint the picture that they were occultic pimps prostituting her spirituality using it for their profit. So this girl began to follow Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy as they were traveling around, as they were praying, as they were ministering in the name of the Lord. And it says, this girl followed us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now when you read that, it's all true, isn't it? It's all true what she said. They indeed were servants of the Most High God. And it's interesting when we look at Satan and his tactics. When we look at, for example, how Satan tempted Jesus. Satan quoted scripture, didn't he? To Jesus. Interestingly, when this spirit, this evil spirit or Satan, speaks through this girl, when he says servants of the Most High God, he uses a high and exalted Old Testament phrase to refer to God. One of the highest phrases to refer to the person and the character of God, the Most High God, who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. This is Satan speaking through a demon. And Paul we're going to find out, was a little bit annoyed by this because he certainly didn't need a demonic billboard walking around proclaiming who they were. Why would it make sense to have, you know, divine credentials ascribed to them from the pit of hell? It doesn't make any sense. And it says here that she did this for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit... I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. So this girl is following them around. She's saying these things. She's like a crier, so to speak, proclaiming who they are and what they're doing. And Paul's looking at this, no doubt filled with the Spirit, as I'm sure Paul and Silas were, understanding that we don't need Satan involved in this. We need to keep him as far away from this as possible. And he turned and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we see in the book of Acts especially, any of the apostles or the disciples casting out demons, healing people, doing miracles and signs, Remember, so often the people, when they saw that, they wanted to give glory to them. They wanted to worship them as gods. But they very quickly corrected them. They said, look, it was not by our power. We didn't do this. Jesus did it. And they made sure that people understood that it was the Lord who was working, not them. And this is a great way, sort of a sub-point, for us to differentiate today is something genuine and real when we see these kinds of things or is it people maybe taking glory for themselves? And if we see something wonderful and miraculous happening, then it has to be the Lord. And if the people involved are not giving glory to God and say, listen, it's not us. 
It's just because God is gracious, because God is merciful. He's the one doing this. You see, the attribution always has to be to the Lord. It always has to be for the glory of God. It's not about the instrument that God uses. It's about God himself. And remember, we've talked about this, that God will not share his glory with man. So Paul turned and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. The language would indicate to us that it was that very second. In that very moment as those words left his lips, this demon left her. Paul was like Jesus as we think about Jesus. Whenever he cast demons out of people in the Gospels, so often he said to them, be quiet when he cast them out. He didn't want them speaking of who he was. Remember one of the times Jesus cast out a demon and as he did that, or was in the process of doing that, they said to him, we know who you are, you son of God. And Jesus like, be quiet. I, I don't need you proclaiming who I am. And so neither did Paul, neither did the Holy Spirit want a demon proclaiming the glories or the excellencies of God. So in verse 19, when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now as we start to enter this section here where, where Paul and Silas are going to get both prosecuted and persecuted, let's remember all the way back to Acts 13 where they were praying and waiting on the Lord. And remember the Spirit said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I, to which I've called them. Remember as the Spirit sent them out on this second journey that they had prayed and waited upon the Lord. Remember as they are going along the journey here that God is directing them. God led them to Philippi. And as they are there in obedience to the call of God, to the leading of the Spirit, they are now being dragged into the marketplace by the authorities and they brought them to the magistrates. Verse 20. And they said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You see, inside the Jewish realm, so to speak, there was a prohibition against people being false teachers and bringing false doctrines in. In the Roman world, the Romans, because they served Caesar, they, they were under no such obligation to receive anyone. In fact, they were, you know, they believed in pretty much anything. Uh, they were some atheists. Sometimes they were just polytheists. Uh, there was such a mix of what they believed. But these people, in this moment, because Paul and Silas and casting out the demon from the girl had ruined their, their revenue stream... That's the real reason behind why they're dragging it, them into the magistrates. And they, they said in verse 20, these men being Jews. You see, Jews are actually were not, uh, they could travel about the Roman world, but they were not free to just do whatever they wanted. And if a Jew uh, went uh, elsewhere in the, the, just the, the realm of Rome, and they began to proclaim their Judaism, they could be persecuted and thrown into jail. And it's interesting, now Luke and Timothy, 
uh, you know, they were Gentiles. And for whatever reason, they weren't being associated at this moment with Silas and Paul. So Silas and Paul were the ones who were being dragged before the magistrates. And, of course, Paul was the one who spoke and cast out this demon. And he says, And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. In other words, they're trying to sort of bring in some new doctrine. They're here really just to stir up trouble, is the message. And then the multitude, verse 22, rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes. There's no trial. This is sort of what happened to Jesus, right? They just got angry with them. And so they tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. So for their faith, for preaching the gospel, for casting out a demon, the multitude rose up against them. And they were beaten with rods. Now, these men who were the ones charged with beating them with rods were in the Latin called lictors. And it's the phrase from where where we get the term, you know, taking your licks or getting your licks. These men were actually charged with carrying out the justice of Rome. And they held a very prominent position. In fact, when they were being called to deliver justice, such as beating these people with rods, they would walk down the street with what would sort of look like, in a sense, an Olympic torch, but it was a bundle of rods, uh, more akin to what we would think of today as caning, if you've heard of that sort of in, in Southeast Asia. This is a very common practice today when they carry out justice. And in the center of that bunch of rods would also be an axe, symbolizing the fact that they even had the authority to, to behead people, to take their lives. And so these lictors came, tore off their clothes, and were beating them with rods. Now, Paul said, and it's very interesting, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. You see, in the Jewish realm, there was a concept of mercy when punishment was being applied. And 40 blows was re- regarded to be lethal, but 39, 40 minus 1, was regarded to be merciful. In the Roman realm, there was no concept of mercy. The, the people applying the AKA justice were free to do whatever they felt was appropriate in the moment. So Paul, writing there in 2 Corinthians, think about this now. Five times I received 39 stripes. I mean, one beating. My goodness. Five times. But he goes on to say, three times I was beaten with rods. This is one of those times. Five times plus three, eight times. Beaten severely for the name of Jesus. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. So this is one of those times where he was beaten with rods. And it says, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. These men were brutally beaten. 
their backs were torn open in much the same way Jesus was. And so it's well documented that these prisons, and when it says uh, thrown them into the prison to keep them securely, that's a code phrase for maximum security prison. So this jailer, when he put them into the inner prison, verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's well documented that these were terrible, terrible places. They were filled with the excrement and the feces of people. There was no bathroom. The bathroom was where you were sitting or where you were chained. And so this was, to put it mildly, a cesspool of germs and infection. And they're walking in there with open wounds all over their bodies. And when you think about these things, the first thing you think about is infection at the least and probably sepsis. As you're in the presence of all of this stuff we don't like to talk about, basically raw sewage. And so they are chained up and they are put into stocks. They're put into the maximum security part of the prison. It was up to the discretion of the guard or the jailer how severe he wanted to be in chaining them up. They had on the stocks, they had sort of a a movable sort of pin and socket situation. So when they chained up their feet, they could just be standing up straight. They could be sitting down or they could move the bars out and basically spread their legs and stretch their groin in the sense of, you know, putting them into the most uncomfortable situation. And we aren't told any of those details here, but those were all within bounds of what they could have been exposed to. So they were put into the inner prison and they were fastened into the stocks. Their, their backs are bleeding, they're hurting, they're aching. There's no Tylenol. They are just hurting. Even in their pain, one commentator said, God was not far from Paul and Silas. Tertullian said, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. And as these men sat there, they began to sing. They began to pray. John Stott said, anyone can be happy in pleasant circumstances, but real joy comes only from within and is a gift, a valuable gift to all Christians at all times. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. There's a sign right there, if there ever was one, of someone being filled with love, filled with God's Holy Spirit. These men, as they were being beaten, no doubt seemed to have in their hearts compassion for those who were executing that so-called justice on them. At midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Underline that. People are always listening. People are always watching, not just what was happening there. They had a captive audience. But you and I, listen, if if people know that you're a Christian, if they know that you believe in Christ, trust me, they're watching you. And these people, these other prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas. Consider the amazing turn of events here of what's happened in their day. They were at Lydia's house. A church has been established. They were worshiping and praising the Lord. They go walking on their way. Now this this demon-possessed girl starts to follow them. She follows them for many days. How many, we don't know. Paul casts the demon out of her. 
Now they're being thrown into prison. They've been beaten. They've been severely treated. And they're like, hey, Lord, we're just obeying you. We're just following your lead. Here we are. What do we do? How do we respond when we don't understand what's happening? How do we respond when we think, God, where are you in this moment? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Aren't I your servant? Don't I love you? Didn't I sing it this morning in church? Do you love me, God? How could a loving God allow something like this to happen to one of his children? Here they are, praying and singing. The prisoners were listening. The participles in the Greek are continuous. It says that they were continually praying, continually singing. And I don't know if they were thinking this, but I think of this passage in Daniel chapter 3 where it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king, but even if he does not... We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Here they are in prison. You see, everyone thinks they're in prison, but it's the people who are listening who are truly in prison because they are in prison to their sin. Now, it says that they were singing and that they were praying. The language could be read such that they were actually singing their prayers. The language could also be read such that they were perhaps being Jewish men singing the hymn book of Israel, the Psalms, back to the Lord. What are some of the possibilities? Well, here's a few. Of course, you've got the whole 150 Psalms, right? Psalm 3, listen to this. This could be one of the things they were singing. Lord, how they increase who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Can you imagine if they were singing that? I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves uh, against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me. Oh my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to you, O God. Your blessing is upon your people. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, when even in the bottom of the worst prison. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. Can you imagine if they were singing this and at that very moment the earthquake comes? I'm sure something like that happened that was so dramatic because they were singing and praying as the Lord decided to shake the prison in an earthquake. What if they were singing from Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Cue the earthquake. 
Psalm 32, God, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. Wait a minute. I'm in the midst of some of the worst trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule. Now at this point, if they were singing that, this is like preaching to those who are listening, right? Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Can you imagine them singing those words? And the prisoners are listening. What about us? When we get into trying times, into difficult times, now these guys were suffering for their faith, mind you. Most of the time, our suffering is just a matter of inconvenience, isn't it? A flat tire, a traffic jam, an illness. This week we had a crazy situation in our house. Uh, Wednesday morning, 5.45 a.m., my wife called me. She was downstairs with Rebecca. I'm like, why is she calling me at 5.45? I pick up the phone. She's moaning on the other end of the phone in extreme pain. She's saying, I can't breathe. Come down and help me. I walk downstairs and find her laying on the floor of the bathroom, curled up in a little ball, can't breathe. I call 911. I'm like, God, what is happening here? They come, and while I'm on the phone with the uh, agent, while the paramedics are coming, they're like, does she have asthma? And I'm like, yeah, she does. She hasn't had any attacks in many years. We'll, we'll get the inhaler. So I give her that, and we get her up in the chair, and she takes the inhaler, and she's feeling a little better. They take her to the hospital. Long story short, she had a raging uh, UTI that had reached into her kidney, so she had both a UTI and a kidney infection all at once, and she was in excruciating pain. Uh, you know, they gave her antibiotics. She's doing quite well. Um, but this is what I woke up to, right? And I think, she, I think she's on the floor having a heart attack or something like that. And in those moments, you know, and I'm asking this question of me, understand, I'm not just preaching to you. What about us? What happens to us in that moment? Who do we cry out to? Do we, do we call out to God? Do we praise God in the middle of the storm? Remember, we said people are watching us. Listen to what Paul later wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You see, they were being the fragrant aroma of Christ to those around him as they sang, as they worshiped the Lord, as they prayed out loud in public, for other people to hear them. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, 
And seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You see, if a prison guard escaped from a Roman prison, he was going to be given the worst sentence of anyone who escaped. So he no doubt knew that other people in that jail cell had the death penalty. And so he was just going to save Rome a little money, a little taxpayer money, and do it himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. You mean even the other guys? All the maximum security guys, the guys on death row, they're all still sitting there? They're enthralled. They're listening. They're like, what's going to happen next? This is pretty good. This is amazing. And then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Talk about a turn of events. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? No doubt he was listening too, wasn't he? Even in his sleep. And so this man, sort of leading the way of this little evangelistic revival that's going on in uh, the maximum security prison in the center of Philippi, says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. What must I do to be saved? Jesus was answered that, or asked that question back in John chapter 6. One day the scribes and the Pharisees came to him and they said to Jesus, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Same question, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? Isn't this where so many people get hung up? What are the works I have to do to earn salvation? How do I buy this? How do I secure the salvation of God? That was their question in John 6. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And that is the word of faith which we preach, Paul wrote in Romans 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. They didn't say, well, you have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law of Moses. You have to, to convert and become a Jew. They didn't say any of those things, did they? They didn't say, okay, here's how you're saved. First you come to our church, and then you join our church. And once you're a part of the real church, then you can be saved. Or, here's how you're saved. Let us baptize you, and then you'll be saved. You see, they didn't say any of those things, did they? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And they added on there, you and your whole household. We'll deal with that in a moment. People get kind of uptight about, well, you, but you didn't say repent. Listen, if salvation is happening in the heart of a person, this divine work of God, trust me, repentance is going to happen whether you tell them to repent or not. Was there any evidence in this man's life that he repented? I would submit to you, yes, starting with the fact that he fell down at their feet, saying, sirs, what must I do to be saved? There was an urgency, there was a pleading in his voice. In a few minutes, we're going to find out he takes them home. He's committing a federal crime. 
by taking them out of the prison, taking them to his house. His whole house gets saved. He washes their wounds. They all get baptized. And then he takes them back to the prison. Is there any evidence of repentance in there? I think so. So they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. No doubt these other prisoners were listening as well and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and immediately he and all of his house were baptized. So you're in the middle, it's probably 3 a.m. in the morning. They're like, we got to go down to the river and get baptized, man. Let's go do this right now. God knew what it would take to bring this man to faith. And if there were any others, and I got to believe that there were some, some of the other people in jail who believed. Now let's, let's take that question again. God, would you allow, why would you allow this to happen to me? Does God not have the right in the lives of his servants to allow us to go through something like this so that someone else might get saved? If God knew, and certainly he did, that it was going to take something dramatic like an earthquake, like a beaten slaves in the center of the prison singing the praise of God to draw this man and his family to salvation, does God not have the freedom to do this in my life and in your life? That others are watching and listening our lives as we go through the deepest, darkest despair, watching how we respond, watching how we Respond to our God. Is our faith real? Is our faith genuine? Can't God do that in my life and yours if he wants to? He did it in Paul and Silas's life. And look what's happening. Look at the fruit that's being yielded from their lives as they just humbly submit and walk through these situations. God knew what it would take to bring this man to faith and his household. Now, a word about this whole and your household. Some people get hung up on is there such a thing as a promise to households and all that. I, I don't think there is. I Honestly, my opinion is that as, the, and this happens one or two other times in the book of Acts, that I think this was very prophetic. I think these men, you know, Paul and Silas were looking at the situation saying, I know what's going to happen here. We're going to get to your house and they're going to be amazed. They're going to they're be blown away. Because as you walk in that room, you're not going to be this hardened prison guard that you used to be. You're going to be this, this gentle man. Your disposition will have changed. Your mood will have changed. Your attitude will have changed. Your countenance will have changed. And your whole household is going to believe. Now, we ought to pray for that, obviously, right? If, if we have people in our household who don't know Christ, yes, man, I want that. I, I can't name it and claim it in the name of the Lord, but I can pray it and I can ask God for it. Now, as they are going through this and God is doing all these things in their life, just to remind you of a couple of, uh, of other scriptures, Romans 8.18, listen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul saying, listen, whatever we go through, it doesn't matter as long as it's pointing to the glory of God. Or later in 2 Corinthians 4, listen, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power of God may, may be of God rather and not from ourselves. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. They were in the worst conditions, and they were not forsaken. They knew God was with them as evidenced by their prayers and their singing. Struck down but not destroyed. They certainly had been struck down. Always, listen, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I'd like to hear how the prosperity doctrine preachers deal with that one. Therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Keeping our our eyes on heaven. Understanding that God is in control. Now when, verse 34, back in Acts 16, he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. I think that's evidence of repentance. He rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers saying, let those men go. Now it would seem, it's implied here, that he took them back to prison. And that all the prisoners were still in prison. So the, prisoner, the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to, to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. Well, these magistrates were a little embarrassed. Well, they probably didn't know everything yet, but they are dealing with a situation. They're like, what do we do here? And so they, before they actually knew of the situation, that they were Roman citizens, they said, you know, okay, you can go. We're, we're done dealing with this. And here's the interesting thing. Why did God send an earthquake to free them if he knew they were going to be released by the magistrates in the morning? I submit to you that God did the earthquake for the witness to that Philippian jailer and to those others who were listening. You see, they didn't need an earthquake to break them out. They were going to be given, you know, their freedom in the morning. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. Now, Rome had a really special place for its citizens. Anyone who was a Roman citizen, I mean, you had rights. And you think, we have rights here. Our rights are so eroded, we don't even know anything about this. If you were being stopped by a police officer, and you said, I'm a Roman citizen, and you're in a Roman province, they had to take their hands off of you, back up, and say, then please come with us as we go to court, and we kind of figure out what's going on here. They could not lay their hands on them. They had incredible rights. But if you weren't a Roman citizen... They could do whatever they wanted to you. So Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. So they, ne- they didn't know, they didn't realize that these Jewish men were also Roman citizens. 
So now you say, why didn't Paul say this? Why didn't he play that little card at the beginning of this whole scenario and spare themselves all of this beating with rods and all of that? Well, we're not told. There's a couple of possibilities as far as I can tell. One of them is Paul may have just forgotten in the heat of the moment. Oh yeah, I'm a Roman citizen and they're beating me. Or perhaps the Holy Spirit said, Paul, hang on to that. Not right now. There'll be a time for that a little bit later. Just trust me. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. I want them to come down here and look me in the eye. A Roman citizen, an uncondemned man, not given a fair trial. And I want them to tell me why they did this. And the officers then told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and they pleaded with them and they brought them out and they said, could you, could you please just, you guys just leave, please, quietly. Don't say anything. Don't, don't say you're a Roman citizen. Just leave. Okay? Could, could you do that? Awesome. They came and pleaded with them. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. One commentator here said of this whole idea, this interaction with the magistrates and all of that, our rights are not as important as our obedience to the will of God. God may ask us to lay down our rights for the good of another, in this case, for the Philippian jailer. And it would certainly seem that that's what Paul and Silas did. So they left, they went out of the prison, they entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So imagine they had started this whole little ordeal here at the house of Lydia. Lydia's household had gotten saved. She was putting them up, giving them food, shelter, all of that. They go into the city. They're preaching the gospel. This whole thing happens to them. But God has established a very unique and a very strong church because, and here's something you ought to do. If you don't do that, you should start writing in your Bible at the top of uh, Acts 16. You should write Philippians because this is where the church of Philippi was established. And then for bonus points this week, go and read the book of Philippians because this is the genesis of that church. And so now, as Paul is departing this city, Here's what's happened. God's established a church through the salvation of this wealthy woman named Lydia. He's now saved this demon-possessed girl by casting the demon out of her. We're not, we don't know if she was a part of the church, but I would have to sort of think that she was. This Philippian jailer, he and his household are now saved. No doubt Paul connected them. And perhaps some of those other prisoners were a part of this church so you've got a church here that's got some, some rich, wealthy, influential people. You've got some people who were, you know, this girl was an ex-Pythoness. And now you've got some people who were from Hell's Angels coming out of prison. And this is the genesis of the Philippian church. Crazy, right? And this just ought to at least point us to the fact that God will save whom he will save and he will put people together. The most uncommon, the most unlikely people in a church. 
And when you go back and you read the letter to the Philippians, you can see everything that happened here in, in Acts chapter 16 kind of being born out in that letter. And Paul's saying, man, you guys served with me in the gospel. And it turns out, of all of the letters and all of the churches that Paul talked about, the Philippian church seemed to be the most faithful church. This church, more than any other church, financially supported his ministry all of his life. This little church in Philippi that was born out of this situation. All because they just went in and they preached the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The simplicity of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, the power of God to save people, the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. I titled this message, Obedience May Lead to Suffering. See, this is a concept we have to get straight in our mind. You know, God has not promised us a rose garden. He has not promised us an easy path. But he has promised that he will be with us in it, that he will walk with us if it takes it through the valley of the shadow of death. And if an earthquake is required to deliver us, he'll do that. If he needs to divinely heal someone, he'll do that. If he needs to cripple one of his servants to slow the pace that they may be in the right place at the right time to preach the gospel to somebody else, then he'll do that. Are we willing as his servants to allow him to do this in our lives? The kinds of things that he did in the life of Paul and Silas. You see, he's free to do that because he's God. And whether you and I give him the permission to do that or not, that's immaterial. Because he can and he will. How will you respond? How will I respond in that situation? To what God wants to do in our lives. Buckle up because it's going to get interesting. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us. God, if there are any here this morning or listening who have never heard or have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ, then this morning we simply say, believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Another place it says in the book of Acts, confess your sins and be healed. And so Lord, we do that this morning and we ask you for anyone who needs to do that right now, that they would do that, that they would call upon the name of the Lord. So Lord, we, we love you. Those of, you who are, those of us who are already there, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for speaking to us, for ministering to us, for challenging us this morning. And Lord, may we grow up into the head, even Christ. May we receive these challenges and may we make adjustments in our lives and our attitudes and our hearts to receive the things of God and to be open to the things that you might want to do in our lives and to the ways that you might want to lead us, even if it's painful because we love you, because we trust you. We trust ourselves into the hand of a gracious and a loving God whose love and grace and mercy look very different in the scriptures than what I can conjure up in my mind. But your word instructs me, it instructs us that this is who you are, this is how you are. And that we should never think for one moment that because we go through something like this, that it means you don't love us. All we have to do is read the end of Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? 
Lord, we love you. And as we come to the table, we trust that you'll meet us here and remind us of the goodness of God and of your salvation, so great, so rich, so free, given to us so mercifully to sinners. We love you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.